You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I'm Jim Harrell, and so glad to be with you once again. And I am extremely excited about today's show because we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite shows with someone who I've got to believe probably knows more about it than anybody on the on the planet. I'm talking about Jennifer Kaishan Armstrong. I want to make sure I get that name right. And she is the author of the book, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted and all the brilliant minds who made the Mary Tyler Moore show a classic. Now she also has a number of other books uh, out, including Seinfeldia. And we were originally going to talk about that, but if you've been paying attention to the news at all, of course, we know the sad news that uh, Mary Tyler Moore recently passed away. And I thought maybe we should talk about this book first and just the impact on so many different levels that this program made. Jennifer, welcome to the program today. Thank you for having me. I, a couple of things I want to compliment you on. First of all, and I don't know whose idea it was, but I love the cover because you have that iconic Mary Tyler Moore font and all the different kind of bright colors. And it just brings back the, yeah, I can almost hear the theme music in my head. I love the cover. I, I've been very lucky with, with both covers of my book and my publisher has actually been very collaborative about that. And we've really kind of worked together on those. And I, I know not everyone gets that. So I, I like to, I like to give them a shout out and they've done a really beautiful job. And then the last thing I'll say, and I bet even fewer people get this. Did the title have anything to do with the late 60s movie Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice? Because it just kind of struck me as like, ooh, that's kind of subtle. Definitely. I mean, you know, it's, it's otherwise a little bit of a cumbersome title, yeah. but it's also kind of like it's that and, and also a more modern kind of idea that like, you know, if you know who those four people are, then it, this book is right for you. <laughs> well, I tell you, this book is right for me. Now, let, let me um, let's talk about Mary Tyler Moore a little bit. I guess it might make sense to just kind of get your reflections on her passing. She was so iconic. And, you know, when you look at different celebrity passings, you know, some people say, oh, well, that person wasn't my cup of tea. I mean, sorry to see him go. But I don't think I heard one person who heard about this not go, oh, I mean, everybody was just, to, to borrow a phrase from our friends across the pond there, everybody was kind of gobsmacked. Like, Mary Tyler Moore doesn't die. What were, your, <laughs> yeah. what, what were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, she was she was actually sick for a very long time. She's been, she's had diabetes her whole life and, you know, put on a valiant struggle against that and really also fought for better funding and, and whatnot for that. But um, yeah, it's. I think also we. She became an icon, and I. I don't actually use that term lightly. I'm very picky about. You know, I think we use it too much. But this one, in this case, I think she really did become an icon, especially for single women and women on television. And she did this at a relatively young age. You know, she was in her thirties, which, you know, is not super young, but it's like, that's how we most remember her. And so, yeah, it's that strange feeling. If you've still been watching the reruns, especially of like, wait, I thought that, you know, like this show felt so timeless. It feels like the person is timeless too, but you know, time swiftly passes and life is impermanent. So here we are. 
But she certainly left her mark along with a lot of other people. And I, I, I think it's important to say the show wasn't just about her. There were so many talented people in front of the camera and behind the camera. And we'll talk about that some. But let's talk about Mary Tyler Moore's career at the point of inflection here uh, where the, the, the program was going to get kicked off. I mean, she had been extremely successful on the Dick Van Dyke show as Laura Petrie and then had kind of a mixed bag in the movies. It's my general sense that that probably didn't go maybe as well as she would have liked. Tell us kind of the genesis of the Mary Tyler Moore show, where she was in her career, in her life, and, and how was it all conceptualized? Yeah, and actually the the state of her career that you just mentioned that she was kind of in flux is actually part of its the, the origin story of the actual show. She had had a movie contract. The idea was she's going to be go become a big movie star now because she had done so well on the Dick Van Dyke show. And the, the movies just didn't quite work out for her. I mean, she was in Thoroughly Modern Millie, which was really nice with uh, Julie Andrews. But other than that, they were kind of not great roles. I mean, one of the, the sort of the ones right before the Mary Tyler Moore show was this movie with Elvis, which is famous for being his last movie, as it turned out. But kind of a silly movie, change of habit, playing a nun who falls in love with Elvis, who's played by a doctor, but he also sings. Um, it's sort of a it's sort of a silly movie, you know. And um, they it's it's this you know it's trying to be sort of this melodrama. They try to you know go save people in a poor neighborhood and fall in love, and it's very dramatic, of course, because she is a nun, and that's not good. She is not available, so. You know, so it wasn't going great. She also had this thing where she was supposed to be, she was in this uh, Broadway production of Breakfast at Tiffany's that was a musical version of the movie. And another one of those things that sounded great on paper and just did not go well at all. It actually ended up being one of the most famous, notorious flops of all time on Broadway. It closed before it opened. The producer took out a big ad saying like, Something to along the lines of, I'm, we're going to close this show rather than subject audiences and critics to three hours of boredom. So it's just, you know, things were not going great. And her old co-star, Dick Van Dyke, had a variety show scheduled on CBS. And he decided to invite her on to be his co-star on that. And the thing is, they used to sing and dance together in addition to being cute and funny together on the, on the Dick Van Dyke show. And this allowed them to do that again. And he kind of basically allowed her to steal the show. She was beautiful and talented and sparkly and witty and wonderful. And people went crazy and remembered how much they loved her. And so much so that CBS, right afterwards, offered her her own show and really, it was a very sweet deal. They said, like, you know, you don't have to make a pilot and be judged on your pilot. Like, you can just make 13 episodes. She said she wanted to start her own production company kind of to give her, you know, control over this. And they said, fine. So that was kind of, and those all of those things are really important when it comes to actually con- conceptualizing the show. That was revolutionary for, am I correct, for a woman to have a production company where she, at least in part, controlled her destiny, controlled the the creative, controlled the business. That was a pretty unique situation at that time, wasn't 
Absolutely. I mean, Lucille Ball had famously done this as well, but she's Lucille Ball, you know, she can do what she wants. So yeah, it was, it was still a big deal that she was doing this. And it turns out to be really important because it allowed her and her then husband, Grant Tinker, who really ran the production company to, like we said, control what happened to some extent. And this turns out to be important because the original idea, they hired uh, James L. Brooks and Alan Burns to create the show. And Jim and Alan had this idea that this should be a show about a single or a, a divorced woman starting her life over after her divorce. And CBS hated this idea. You know, divorce was still very kind of taboo and risque, and especially for their beautiful golden star Mary Tyler Moore, they they were scared that uh, this would taint her image. So the compromise ends up being that she is a single woman starting over after a breakup in the big city, you know, has a professional life. So kind of, you know, asking for the the ultimate, the extreme here, they got something that was still pretty revolutionary in, you know, having this single woman over 30 focused on her professional life instead of, I think what CBS maybe thought she was going to do, which was, would be to, you know, do another kind of traditional housewife role. Now, in terms of casting the show, I mean, they just seem to have gotten it so right. I mean, I can't think any of anybody other than Ed Asner is Mr. Grant, and which I could never get used to the show, Lou Grant, which he spun off because it was just so different. I, I just never cared for that show. But uh, and then they got, you know, political and, and, and so forth. It just was. This is not Lou Grant. This is some other guy with the name Lou Grant. But anyway, I, I digress. You know, Ed Asner's Lou Grant. Uh, Ted Knight is Ted Baxter, whom I understand that even he felt picked on like people were uh, other people were internalizing him as as, as Ted Baxter. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Of course, uh, Rhoda and later on Phyllis and, and, and Sue Ann Nivens and just they seem to get almost every casting decision right. Uh, is there a really uh, it's got to be an interesting story behind the casting? Yeah, it's really it's astounding. And I think any of these shows that end up being great classics that stand the test of time, you know, obviously writing of the show is very important, but I, I, I've never seen a show have staying power without a great cast. And this is one of the greats. I mean, I cannot think of any cast that's better, you know, or equal even aside from, I would say Seinfeld, which I also wrote a book about, you know, I think all of those things are really, really important. So yeah, they, they clearly had an eye for talent. And I think, again, this also goes back to, of course, Mary probably would have had some say anyway in the casting, but especially because she had her own production company and they had control over that, you know, that was really important that, you know, she really loved everybody that she worked with and had this rapport with them. And it seemed also like everyone who worked for the show pretty much was a good, nice person that was, you know, that could, they all seemed like they worked really well together, liked each other a lot. Every, it just was one of those magical special moments. Now, would it be fair to say, and maybe there's somebody or another show I'm not thinking about, but in terms of kind of the modern ensemble 
comedy. Was this really the first? Because I think about shows that, you know, come along later, even All in the Family, which had a great ensemble, even though it was maybe smaller or, or, or certainly in Later Day Friends and in Seinfeld and the list goes on and on. Everybody loves Raymond. But was this really the great first ensemble comedy as we know them today? It does feel that way. I'm always scared to say first because then somebody will call it and be like, actually. Um, but, you know, it's definitely among the first. And I should also mention that a huge part of the casting was a woman named Ethel Winant, who was a CBS executive at the time. And she's also really interesting and a really big deal because she was definitely by far the highest ranking executive, female executive that CBS had had, or I think any network had had at the time. And she took a real personal interest in the show because she was a woman, um, I think, for, for lack of a better way to say it. She got the show kind of before the rest of the executives understood why it was such a big deal. And she didn't personally cast every show, but she cast this one um, because she loved it so much. And she was clearly like a genius for doing that. And maybe, you know, it, I think that that goes along with this idea of the ensemble and the fact that it wasn't just about casting Mary and being done. You know what I mean? Like they clearly saw this as all of the characters are important from the beginning and, you know, worked hard to put together this group of people that, you know, this is several people at this point. Like you said, it's not just a couple or four people. It's a bunch of people who had to work really well together and a lot, they got pretty, equal screen time, you know, it wasn't just about Mary and they all seemed like they worked really well together and had some kind of incredible special chemistry. Now, uh, and kind of to your point, I think of the parallels again with Seinfeld, you know, one of the keys to Seinfeld is that the show in large part is not necessarily about Seinfeld. It's about Kramer. It's about George. It's about Elaine. And, and, and I kind of that old uh, sports uh, metaphor, I think they used to use for Reggie Jackson, the straw that stirs the drink. And in some ways, Mary Tyler Moore, certainly she was central in a lot of plots, but she seemed to be like she's the sane person, even though maybe a little insecure, but the nice sane person around all these crazy people. <laughs> and I thought that was part of the success, too. Absolutely. This is a very common formula, I feel like now, maybe not as common back then. It always reminds me, I say it's the Kermit the Frog formula. It's like yeah, exactly. Kermit was always, right? Right? He's, he was always the like the sane voice of reason among a bunch of crazy, crazy animals in that case, but crazy characters. And that was very true of both the Mary Tyler Moore show and Seinfeld to a little lesser extent. But what was great, I think, about both of those is that when I was doing research for both of those books, people kept telling me how both of those stars were so generous because their people's experience on a lot of other shows with a major, you know, with a named star at the center often said, you know, it, it was very unusual for the star to be so generous to allow other people to have great storylines and great laugh lines, you know, um, to the point where Mary would sometimes say, you know what, that's a really funny line, but it's better as a Rhoda line. She should say it instead. And that seems like it was really important, not just in making the show better for obvious reasons, but also because it it kind of made people trust them and like them and feel like they were a team instead of just in support of this one star. 
Our guest is Jennifer Cation Armstrong. The book is Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and we'll be back right after this with more. Hey, everybody. I hope that you're enjoying TV you grew up with. You know, we are a one-man band here, a solopreneur, so we really try to focus in on the projects that people love. And we've been getting some great feedback on this show. I absolutely love doing it, but we need to have it catch on to a wider audience if we're going to continue it. So do me a favor. If you love what we do, please subscribe to the show in whatever podcatcher program you listen to. That could be iTunes, your podcast app on your iPhone or your iPad, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, wherever you listen to this, please subscribe. And also please rate and review it so other folks will know that it is a great show. Please also share it online with your friends or in your Facebook groups, maybe where you're a fan of a particular TV show and we spotlight it on the program. Because since we are a solopreneur operation, now we do have some great folks helping us out with some editing and some different things. But when it comes down to it, at the end of this day, it's me (laughs) mainly. And I have to focus on the things that people love. And if I find something that somebody loves, I will keep doing it forever and a day. I've been doing my main show, The Paranormal Podcast, since 2005. But we've had other projects that maybe weren't as popular or took too many demands. And we kind of set those to the side because we have to really focus on getting you the best content and the things that the most people will like. So we hope that's one of those projects because, boy, I love doing this show. So please show us that you love the show. Subscribe, rate, review, share it on social media, tell a friend. We thank you so much. And now back to TV you grew up with. We're back on TV you grew up with. Our guest today is Jennifer Cation Armstrong. The book is Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted. And we're talking about all the brilliant minds who made the Mary Tyler Moore show a classic. Now, when I think of Mary Tyler Moore, I get the image of Mary Richards sitting at her desk, you know, next to Murray. How close, I I know she had problems with alcoholism. We talked about uh, some of her uh, issues with with health and diabetes and so forth. But how close was the real Mary Tyler Moore to Mary Richards? I think like sort of um, is the answer. I, I think less than people think, but I do, you know, obviously people's personality informs and colors the characters that they play. So a lot of the things we like about her obviously came from Mary Tyler Moore. So she just, she had this, you know, I think we all know this is why we loved her. It's like she had this kind of aura of like, you want to know her, you want to hang out with her. Fairly, fairly sort of wholesome, sweet personality and that sort of thing, you know, obviously funny and charming. But she also, you know, she wasn't as, like you said, she had a lot of difficulties uh, in her life, later, more difficulties um, after the show. So, you know, her, I don't think she was quite as rosy as, as Mary. And she also, you know, became this feminist icon for obvious reasons. But she herself, especially at the time of the show, did, did not really identify as a feminist per se. She sort of, she had this, this standoffish relationship with the movement that she ended up kind of embodying on television. So, you know, I, I think it's always important to remember that uh, people are not exactly like the characters they play on television. 
Well, it would seem to me, and I mean, this is maybe not appropriate coming from a man, but it would seem like, you know, there in any kind of movement, there, there are people who talk a lot and then there's people who lead by example. And I, I would think it would be fair to say that she just led by example. She was a feminist by having her own production company, by, you know, calling a lot of the shots on the program and kind of casting uh, her own uh, course, if, as it were. So I guess she was probably sounds like one of those people who did it by action rather than by words. Absolutely. And I mean, another thing that that this sort of this particular conflict embodies is simply that, you know, at almost any time when when a show or a character is seen as the one representative show of a bigger issue like this, it's never going to be perfect. You know, um, it's never going to be the perfect feminist show. To be honest, a perfect feminist show would be very boring to watch because it would be about how this person was wonderful and perfect and no one wants to watch that. That's not the point of, of comedy or drama. You need conflict. And so, you know, she was an imperfect feminist. She called her boss Lou Grant, or she called her boss Mr. Grant while everyone else called him Lou. She asked for equal pay, which was great, but only, but didn't quite get it. She got a raise, but she didn't get actual equal pay. She was timid at times, you know, but they, they weren't trying necessarily to make the perfect feminist show. They were trying to make a show that was about a specific, realistic, modern woman. And she she was the character that they were portraying. So they wanted to do right by her and make her seem like a real person. And I think by doing that, they, you know, I think they made a, made their points better uh, because it felt more real and like someone's actual life. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the show was the relationship between Lou Grant and uh, Mary Richards. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? There was almost a hint of a possible romance, but then he's married. And I, I mean, uh, the most famous quote, you know, you've got spunk. I hate spunk. <laughs> talk about that dynamic, because particularly I would think in the beginning of the show, that was kind of like the, the center at the at the very start. Absolutely. And I don't know if they even meant for that to happen, but certainly the minute you get Ed Asner on the screen, it's hard to ignore him. And they had great chemistry together. They had great comedic chemistry, obviously, as as we know from that, you know, famous scene from the pilot. So, you know, it was it was definitely part of the dynamic. I think also there was this idea like that this was it is a different version of a family show, you know, and they were kind of the the mom and dad at the center of this dysfunctional work family, essentially. So, you know, we still had and like you said, that that kind of caused some people to wonder if there could be a romance there. They very famously and hilariously, in my opinion, uh, dealt with that in a, a late episode, they actually had them try to date and it, it went disastrously. And I love that they didn't end up having them get together because I thought it was really great to see this different kind of relationship between a man and a woman. This was a mentor and mentee, or, and then they kind of become equals, I think, over time, which is really cool. Well, I, actually, you just preempted my question because it was my <laughs> sense. Granted, I was, you know, I was a little kid. I mean, I think what what year did it start? Seventy? Is that right? Seventy something? Seventy, like yeah. Seventy. So I was a year old. But but I mean, I did watch as a little kid and then uh, repeat. And in you, to me, you can tell a difference with the older episodes, the later episodes. Was there an talk about the evolution of the show? 
Yeah, I mean, especially Barry, which is really cool. There's an actual evolution. I guess all of the characters, to some extent, have an evolution, which is feels real and right. You know, this is over seven years of their lives. And especially for Mary's character, they were really important years. You know, there are some times in our lives when maybe everything just kind of goes okay and it's not a big deal, but she had a lot of upheaval and she was figuring stuff out at this time. So you really do see her go, you know, her fashion changes. She goes from wearing mini skirts and go-go boots, which I know fashion, of course, in general changes over time. But she went from kind of a young woman fashion to a career woman. You know, by the end, she's wearing mostly suits and her hair is shorter and she looks like our idea of a female executive. She moves from this small apartment where she has to sleep on a fold-out bed, a fold-out sofa, to a, a grown woman apartment, you know, with, with a separate bedroom and everything else. So you really do see, and she steps into her role more at work, where she goes from kind of being afraid to take charge to really handling things. So we see a big change in her. We see Lou go through a divorce and kind of soften So we see a lot of character arcs that happen. And part of why I think they eventually decided to end after seven years was, you know, either they were going to have to seriously rethink the entire show or they were going to have to end it, you know, and they, to go somewhere else with these characters, they were going to have to do some major changes or just end it. They decided to go out on top. I just want to name off some of the, the, the actors or the characters and just have you give us an impression or two, especially since uh, the events of the last few weeks. We spent a lot of time on Mary Tyler Moore. And of course, you can't do that. You can't do a show about the Mary Tyler Moore show without talking about Mary. But let's talk about a few of the other players and just get uh, you know a little bite here, too, of your, your thoughts. The, the person that sat next to her for all of those years, uh, Murray Gavin McClough. Yeah, and he was that's a fun one because he actually Gavin originally came in to audition for the character of Lou Grant and he said that he often found himself auditioning for the same roles as Ed Asner at the time. They kind of both played, you know, middle-aged grumpy men. And he said, you know, when he went to read for this, he he told them, I really, I, I think I want to read for Murray instead. And they let him and he got the role because it, it reflects his actual personality a lot more. He's, he's not a very, you know, gruff, mean guy. He's actually pretty sweet and soft. And maybe we saw that a little more afterwards because he became the captain of the love boat. But, you know, this was sort of his first foray into a character who was a little closer to him, more like soft and witty instead of gruff and mean. And uh, Ted Knight. Yeah, I can't imagine that show without Ted Knight. He's a genius, right? Like, wow. Like you said, too, he, he was so good at the role that he got to a point where he was he was sort of dissatisfied with everything because people thought he was as dumb as his character. He was just, he was just so good in that role. And a little aside on that. Now I'm from the Cleveland area. And when I was a kid, Ted Knight did commercials here in the Cleveland market. He may have done it in other markets for other malls. There was a strip mall here called Southgate USA. And he did, <laughs> he did commercials for them in the full. He even had a blazer and a little Southgate USA little placard on it. And he would do it in the, uh, the, the Ted, the Ted Baxter character. So it was, uh, it was a little extra local time, but I'm guessing he may have done that in other markets as well. <laughs> 
I know he did do a lot of, of those sorts of things before the show. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, this was this was this. Yeah, this was after the show. And he did the, the whole the, the whole kind of, well, I'm here at Southgate USA reporting. It was very funny. Of course, everybody's darling now. Everybody loves her. Betty White. How did Betty White become a part of the show? She and by the way, I just always say this when I talk about her on the show. Everyone should run off and go watch at least the first episode <laughs> that she's on immediately. Stop everything you're doing. She is like we all know she's great, but whenever I rewatch that, I'm like she's incendiary. Like this is peak Betty White. She's so good. She's like a coquette of types. She's so good, it, and it's such a complicated role. I think that's why she's so good because it's she's. She's playing the happy homemaker who, you know, has kind of a Martha Stewart show on Mary's station and, you know, has this great thing going where it's like she's super sweet and this homemaker on on the air. And then the minute the cameras go off, she is dark and mean and difficult. (laughs) And it's just great. So, um, yeah, Betty White, they they sort of famously wrote this this role a couple of seasons in and and described it as like she's like a, a Betty White type on the screen <laughs> and they thought like oh, we couldn't actually get Betty White could we but Mary was friends with her in real life and so she was like well we could call her and see and so Betty came and auditioned or I don't think she auditioned but she Betty said yes and you know, they couldn't just use her in one episode once that happened. So they ended up writing this character in to a lot of the episodes for the remaining couple of years, which was a nice balance because they had lost the Rhoda character and the Phyllis character to their own spinoffs because they were so great. So it was, they needed kind of some more female characters anyway. And they, they kept the hits coming with that one. Actually, you named the next two on my list. Let's start with Valerie Harper. Yes, who is one of the most amazing women. She's she's just wonderful and you know, everyone on set loved her and she, you know, that character was was sort of originally conceived as the dumpy one, you know, she was supposed to be kind of like the schlubby sidekick to Mary. That was often, you know, I know they still do it sometimes, but they really used to do it back then, like kind of this idea of the sidekick had to be you know, schlumpier and less attractive than the person they were the sidekick to. But, you know, they couldn't resist Val. And they really did say the, the one problem is she's too beautiful. And they got over it and cast her anyway, thank goodness. And it's just so, so great at being, I think, still a great contrast to marriage. She doesn't have to be schlumpy. You know, it's like she's she's caustic and witty and she's, they said that the the idea of that character was like, you know, to Mary, she, Minneapolis is a big city, but to Rhoda who had grown up in New York, you know, it's a small town. And so there's that contrast between them. So they eventually even let her shine more. And, you know, she lost like 30 pounds during the course of the show. They wrote that into the show as a little bit of an arc for Rhoda and she had to kind of like adjust to this new idea of herself. She got way more fashionable, became a fashion icon with her headscarves, you know, and just really exploded and ended up with her own show, which, you know, was not perfect, but I loved that show. And that was a big deal when she, I can't, I mean, I watched it as a kid. I can't remember, but when she got married to the male lead, David Groh, I believe it was, that was a big deal. It was a huge deal. It was actually at the time, I forget the exact statistic, but it was like 
the the highest rated scripted television show at that time. Everybody stopped what they were doing. People had Rhoda wedding parties. Um, there's this sort of famous thing where um, Howard Cosell, I believe it was, you know, was calling Monday Night Football on a different channel and was like, you know, at the time the show that Rhoda ended, he said like, welcome to everyone who just joined us because you were watching Rhoda's <laughs> wedding instead. It was a really, people sent wedding gifts to CBS for Rhoda. It was a really, really big deal. And as a little aside, Rhoda's sister, Julie Kavner, Mart Simpson. Yes, Mart Simpson. <laughs> it's really hard to watch that show now and not, I mean, it's such a distinctive voice. Rhoda! That, like, yeah. Anytime I watch, yeah, every time I watch reruns, I just see... Yeah, it's Marge Simpson. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Talk about a great second <laughs> act of her career. Wow. Ah, oh, so good. Loris Leachman, who had done a ton of stuff, I think of uh, Frau Blücher in uh, Young Frankenstein. Phyllis. So was Phyllis, I can't remember the chronology, was she basically the replacement for Rhoda, basically? No, she was on, she was in the, the pilot. That's right. I'm remembering now because they didn't like each other, right? They didn't like each other. And, and the very first very first episode... Mary and Rhoda are fighting over the apartment that Phyllis is letting. So she's there from the beginning and kind of a great, she's, she works as, as a great contrast in a lot of ways to Mary because she is in fact a housewife um, who lives in the same building. But the other thing that they did the, that made her so interesting was they didn't just make her like, Oh, she's a nice housewife. She has, she's very complicated herself. It's like, she's very sort of, proud and, you know, often kind of acts like she's superior to Rhoda and Mary because she's married, but it kind of also belies this. There has to be an underlying insecurity, right? Um, if if she's she has to brag about it so much, something's wrong. Um, and, you know, Cloris Leachman is a genius. So they were, you know, it's, it's another big hit for this cast. It's just, she's so incredible. She's definitely was like, there's, I always say there's, there's one in every group, at least a lot of groups, um, on sitcoms. There's, there's one that's like, I'm going to be the method actor and like, you know, cause all kinds of production problems from it. Um, she was just like really into what she did and, and it was, she was difficult to direct because, you know, in a sitcom, especially when you're a traditional sitcom on a set, like they have the cameras set up a certain way the audience is there. You need to hit your marks, but she just, you know, she would be like, well, I just felt like, you know, I felt like Phyllis would do it this way. I just, in the moment, I felt like I needed to do it a different way. So she would make the directors crazy all the time, but she was obviously brilliant and a really sweet person. I mean, everybody got along great, but she was, she was as much of a problem as, as they had on that show. And I, I want to mention one other person who I don't think gets enough credit because they just think, well, she was playing herself or whatever, but I thought she was hilarious. Georgia Engel. Oh, she's so good, too, isn't she? I, I have no idea. I mean, I guess she is a lot like her character to some extent. I mean, she has that voice. She could probably do anything just with that voice, and you would think it was funny. But, she, yeah, she really was another. They were so good at putting these characters together who kind of played nicely off of each other and contrasted nicely. So she ended up being, you know, Ted Knight's love interest and then wife. And what a great idea. What a great pairing of those two, just them playing yeah. off of each other was so great. Yeah. 
exactly. Like they're kind of both supposed to be not that smart, but especially her, she's like secretly smart. It's just that her voice makes her seem kind of childlike and innocent, but she could really, you know, handle him when she needed to. And there were a lot of uh, guest stars and a lot of people, you know, for example, and I believe he was actually for a while a member of the regular class uh, cast, uh, people like John Amos. And you'll tune it on and you'll be like, oh, I forgot that person was there. And a lot of great character actors as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's just further testament to um, their ability both to cast and to come up with characters. It's another thing that I see as a similarity between this show and Seinfeld, that they really let their guest, guest stars shine. Um, they didn't just have like throwaway characters. They were each each character was sort of carefully conceived um, to serve a purpose, and you know that allows their guest stars to actually shine instead of just kind of being there to serve a purpose. And the next thing I'm going to say is going to sound kind of strange, but I have this feeling when I see the Mary Tyler Moore show. You know, uh, all of us who I'm in my mid forties, we um, we reach a certain age and we lose people in our lives. And you see a show like Mary Tyler Moore come on and you turn it on and you kind of think, well, you know, I'm here with my bowl of chicken soup. Mom's in the other room and uh, I'm seven years old and everything's okay. I mean, am I the only one that has that? I almost get it's really weird. I almost get choked up thinking about it. Is it is this a reaction other people have? Of course. I mean, that's why nostalgia is so huge. That's why they're remaking every show, movie, everything of all time, because, you know, especially, especially in these times, as I like to say, you know, things are stressful and this brings you back to that time. And, you know, it, things were probably simpler for most of us in the seventies, simply because we were pretty young. So, you know, while there were issues in the world going on, it does definitely give us that feeling, um, especially because I think TV especially can do this, you know, because it, it's like this thing you did every week for years, you know, on a schedule, let them into your actual home. Um, so it, you have this cozy feeling about it. What's the legacy, do you think, of the program? You know, I think there's the obvious one you know, women on television, single women on television, this was it. And I would also say just, you know, women in comedy. We had had Lucy, of course, but besides that, this was the next big moment for women in comedy. And lots of women worked behind the scenes as well, who ended up going off to, you know, help run TV networks and production companies and write other shows. So, it had this kind of, you know, broad legacy for women, both in their portrayal and as production company owners, everything else in between. Besides that, there's also just things like, I think this was part of a movement in the 1970s that showed us that TV could be smart. It didn't have to be just slapstick, stupid stuff that was, you know, there was right before this, we were in the mode of like green acres and I dream of genie and stuff like that. And this was like real stuff with real feelings. Another huge innovation of the Mary Tyler Moore show is this combination of pathos and humor that seems so natural to us now, but they were so good at toggling back and forth between emotions and humor. And now so many shows do it, you know, the office, the Mindy project, a billion others that are on TV now, um, this kind of very naturalistic 
grounded sitcom that's that's more than just silly funny. And so they did, you know, the workplace comedy, they basically invented that. You know, they, they really, there were a lot of innovations here that we see in the DNA of things we watch now. When I look at the title and I, I look at the other characters other than Mary, uh, they all had, to varying degrees, success with projects beyond this. And, and certainly Cloris Leachman and, and, and uh, Betty White and those people went on to have uh, interesting and and. and Good careers. Mary Tyler Moore, of course, you've got Ordinary People, uh, which she had great acclaim for, but really not a great deal more. Do you think that it was just kind of a personal situation? Do you think she was just so identified with Mary Richards that she couldn't do something else? Why do you think that the career for Mary Tyler Moore just didn't didn't live up to that show? You know, I think that almost any show of this magnitude, it's nearly impossible to have another one of those in your life. She actually had two. She had the Dick Van Dyke show and the Mary Taylor Moore show. The only person I can think of is Bob Newhart. I mean, Bob Newhart's the other person I can think of. Yes. There are very few. It does happen occasionally, but there are very few. I'm going to say, you know, something that comes up a lot with Seinfeld too is the Seinfeld curse. And, you know, only Julia Louis-Dreyfus has lived down that one. And it seems like she really worked hard to get that. Yeah, but she had a couple stops and starts too after after that. Absolutely. It's it's pretty extraordinary to have even one of these in your life. If you have two, that's incredible. She happened to have them in pretty close succession. So it's a perceptual thing. But you know, it like you said, there's a number of issues with with kind of overcoming. <laughs> I hate to say it that way. I'm sure, you know, people you'd rather have this problem than any other. But overcoming a giant show like this, like first everyone identifies you with that character. And if you were, you've been playing this person for seven years, 22 episodes a season, like people really feel like you are that person and it's hard for them to see you as anything else. But there's, you know, just the odds of this happening again are also extremely small. We were talking about the cast and how magical it was. You have to have the cast, the writing, the idea, the time, everything. Sometimes there's a great show that just doesn't work because people aren't responding to it or it's on in the wrong time slot. So, you know, it's it's just, it's weird that it ever happens. So for it to happen more than once is would be really surprising. Um, the only reason we notice it is because, you know, once somebody's on a big show, we watch them and then we're like, why can't they do it again? You know, she, she did a lot more work in her life and even did a cute little Mary and Rhoda reunion movie maybe 10 years ago or so. Um, yeah, she was out there doing her work and that's all most of us can, can hope for in life. Well, I've got to say, it's been a joy talking about this. It just, uh, it's one of those episodes that just puts a smile on your face. The book is Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted and all the brilliant minds who made the Mary Tyler Moore show a classic by Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Jennifer, I'm assuming folks can, can find or have this ordered at their bookstore. Certainly it's on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. I'm assuming they can get access to it. Absolutely. And your website. JenniferKArmstrong.com. And I must say, I'm hoping to have Jennifer back on the show. Hopefully, after this experience, she'll agree to come back on to talk Seinfeld. So we're hoping to do that soon. Jennifer, thank you for your time today on TV You Grew Up With. Thank you for having me. 